This is a conversation with Avi Loeb. He's a cosmologist, astrophysicist, professor of astronomy at Harvard University, and the author of multiple best-selling books on physics, science, and astronomy. He's the head of the Galileo Project, founding director of the Black Hole Initiative, and former head of the Department of Astronomy at Harvard University. In this conversation, we discuss his love for philosophy, especially existentialism, and then we spend a large chunk of the time talking about everyone's favorite topic, aliens. Where are they? The Fermi paradox. And then we talk about two really mysterious objects that could be the first signs of an extraterrestrial civilization. You heard it here first. This is no time. If you like what you see, then do hit subscribe on YouTube, follow on Spotify or rate five stars on Apple Podcasts. This project runs on your love and support. So if you'd like to see it continue, do consider making a donation on Patreon, Anchor, or you can join on YouTube and become a member. If not through monetary channels, then do consider sharing these episodes, leaving your likes and comments. All forms of engagement, they really go a long way. For the forms of love and support, you can follow this channel on Instagram or Twitter or follow me personally. And now, it's no time. John Paul Sartre had once said that if you're lonely when you're alone, then you're in bad company. <laughs> you grew up on a chicken farm in Bethana in Israel. When you were a teenager, you used to drive your tractor to a quiet spot in the hills surrounded by crimson iris flowers. And in those moments when you were... When you were alone, you were not lonely because you spent that time reading the works of John Paul Sartre, Albert Camus and other philosophers. I want to start there. What was it about philosophy that attracted you to it at such a young age? And what was that feeling like discovering these philosophers in those magical days in the hills of Bethanan? Well, it was fundamentally the fact that philosophy addresses the f- basic questions in life. And um, I was particularly interested in existential philosophy, existentialism, because uh, it doesn't pretend to know more than uh, what we know. And, you know, for me, a beginner's mind, curious about the world, uh, should be maintained. Uh, And we shouldn't pretend like the adults in the room that we know the answers to questions that we don't really know the answers to. That was the most traumatic experience for me as a kid to realize that um, very often when you ask a difficult question, uh, those adults in the room uh, are either diminishing the significance of the question or inventing a, an answer that uh, doesn't reflect any knowledge based on evidence. And so I decided to become a scientist eventually so I can answer the questions myself. But philosophy offered me uh, the, the landscape of asking the most fundamental questions. And uh, I was very much attached to nature. That's why I never feel lonely because nature is all around us. Um, I don't have any footprint on social media because uh, I don't care how many likes I get from people. People are very often, uh, you know, motivated by impressing others and not really um, learning uh, about the world that surrounds us uh, in a way that is innocent, the way kids do. So I'm trying to maintain my childlike curiosity. And the one thing that bothers me is that the childlike bullying is often more prevalent than childlike curiosity. I visited the school, uh, the elementary school, uh, where I studied uh, about 50 years ago. And uh, I told the kids that I'm just like them. I wonder about the world. And uh, one of them said, uh, 
Well, uh, Avi, we know that uh, you're 61 years old. Uh, how is that possible that you are just like us? And I said, well, it's not a matter of biological age. It's uh, actually maintaining a beginner's mind. Why, why John Paul Sartre in particular? Why Albert Camus? Why existentialism? There are so many other philosophers, so many other branches of philosophy. What was it about these philosophers and this branch of philosophy that appealed to you the most that attracted you to it? They were sincere. Uh, Sartre, for example, declined the Nobel Prize in literature because he said, why should I give importance to this committee? Uh, they're not doing anything uh, original. They are just feeling important by giving me the award, and I don't really care about that. Uh, and uh, Camus uh, started uh, one of his books uh, by asking the most fundamental question, why is life worth living? So they were very sincere. Um, and they didn't pretend anything. And I love that uh, approach. Uh, and I thought of becoming a philosopher, but the circumstances uh, forced me to pursue science, which was the closest that I could uh, practice uh, to my wish. Um, and that is because I was born in Israel and, and the military service is obligatory. So I was good in physics and recruited to a program uh, that allowed me to still think rather than uh, uh, carry a machine gun and, and run in the field. So I preferred to do that. And I finished my PhD at age 24 in physics and mathematics. Can I actually probe you on that further? So you've often described your relationship with physics as an arranged marriage. Phys philosophy was your first love. Like you, like you said earlier, you asked to enroll in the military in Israel. And the only way you could pursue intellectual work was if you ventured into a career in physics. And then you've said in previous interviews that you discovered much later in life that you were in fact married to the love of your life because there are many philosophical questions that are embedded in physics. I want to linger on that slightly. And this is at the risk of sounding silly or obvious, but how tight is the link between physics and philosophy? What are some of the deep, profound philosophical questions that physics is trying to answer? Right. So, I mean, the way physicists practice the profession, uh, you can split it into two parts. One is... Uh, collecting data, evidence, uh, that's what experimentalists are doing. And the second is uh, a, a more architectural approach of uh, theoretical physics, trying to figure out what the big picture is. And, you know, when you construct a building, you first need to have a blueprint and uh, you need to decide how to um, sort of shape the building. And then, of course, there is a lot of engineering of putting the bricks together and uh, making it uh, a reality. And uh, so in the context of physics, you do have that. And uh, the part that I work on is the more conceptual part. And there you have very fundamental question, like how did we come to exist? What are our, our cosmic roots? And as of now, we can date it back to the Big Bang because the universe is expanding. And if we go back in time, there was a point where the density of matter was infinite. All the matter that we see now expanding uh, was infinitely dense and Einstein's theory of gravity that was conceived about uh, 108 years ago uh, breaks down. And we know what's missing. Uh, we know of another pillar of modern physics called quantum mechanics. And uh, that part is not unified with Einstein's gravity as of yet in a theory that is predictive. So uh, we just don't know what happened before the Big Bang because we don't have a theory of quantum gravity. And if I ever meet 
aliens, <laughs> the first question I want to ask them, what happened before the Big Bang? Because that would educate us about how to unify quantum mechanics and gravity if, if they know the answer. Yeah. Uh, and moreover, I'm just curious about my cosmic roots. Uh, you know, how did everything start? And we know that uh, the Old Testament talks about uh, one story that indeed it started at some time as a result of uh, a superhuman entity called God. Yeah. And God decided <laughs> to create the universe. Now, this may not be completely wrong um, if instead of God, you say a very advanced scientist in a white coat uh, in a laboratory uh, who understood quantum gravity could have created a baby universe in the laboratory. So, so, you know, if we had the recipe for making a universe, we could create another one. And in fact, this could explain the Big Bang because there was no beginning in time. It's just like babies becoming adults and making new babies. So if our universe gives rise to um, quantum gravity engineers that build new universes similar to it, it's just like babies becoming adults and having babies that become adults that have babies and that goes forever. It's such a powerful philosophical question. I'm tempted to ask you another silly question, which is Oscar Wilde once said that we are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. When you look at the stars as a professor of astronomy or as a curious farm boy, what do you see? What are some of the thoughts that come into your mind? What are some of the biggest mysteries of the universe when you look up at the sky above? Well, it's remarkable that in astronomy, you can actually see what the astronomers are talking about. You know, in particle physics, uh, right now, uh, we are discussing particles that we can't really see. There are elementary particles that are, uh, you know, only produced in accelerators when we smash particles at uh, extreme energies. But in astronomy, you just look up yeah. and uh, <laughs> you see the Milky Way galaxy and you see all these stars out there. And when I go out uh, to the street at night and see the stars, what I think about is that they look like the lights of, uh, in the cabins of uh, a ship, a giant ship that uh, moves through space because the Milky Way is moving through cosmic space. And uh, I often wonder if there are any other passengers <laughs> next to these lights in those cabins, you know? And that's a fundamental question. And of course, many people prefer to argue we are unique and special, that there is nothing like us. Uh, and that started from saying that we are at the center of the universe, that we are at the physical center. Uh, very wise people, smart people like Aristotle uh, argued that. And for a thousand years, people believed him. And uh, until Nicolaus Copernicus was born uh, 550 years ago, and he realized that we are not at the center, the physical center. So actually, in a week, I'm going to Poland, uh, where Nicolaus Copernicus lived uh, in the town of uh, uh, Torun. Uh, I was invited by the Polish government uh, because they are celebrating 550 years uh, since the birth of uh, Copernicus. And in fact, he was born one week uh, before my birthday. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, they asked me to give a keynote speech uh, about he, um, what I work on. And uh, I titled my lecture, The Next Copernican Revolution, 
because a lot of my colleagues still believe that we are at the intellectual center of uh, the universe. In fact, even Elon Musk a month ago was arguing when giving the 2024 Starship uh, uh, forecast, he said that um, we have responsibility because we might be alone. He didn't see evidence for aliens. Therefore, we have to go to Mars and uh, settle there so that we will not be vulnerable to a single point catastrophe here on Earth. Yeah. And I say that is very arrogant to claim that we are the only ones in the entire universe because, you know, um, here is a simple uh, argument that Elon Musk uh, put a dummy payload back in 2018 on the heavy Falcon. Yeah. And that was his car, yeah. the <laughs> Tesla Roadster. And he launched it into an elliptic orbit around the sun. And it's still in that orbit. We can't see it with any of our telescopes. But I argue that since the Big Bang over the past 13.8 billion years, surely there has been more accomplished entrepreneurs than Elon Musk out there. And they may have launched debris into space. And um, perhaps there are many such cars passing through interstellar space. Now, if astronomers were to see one of these, they would say, it looks to us like a rock of a type that we've never seen before. Um, <laughs> and that's what they argue about some of the objects we'll talk about. And um, I say, well, you have to search in order to gain new knowledge. You can't just off the cuff say, I haven't seen anything because we had to invest $10 billion in the Large Hadron Collider at CERN to find, to discover the Higgs boson. Uh, we, didn't, we couldn't say, I don't see the Higgs boson, maybe it doesn't exist. That's not a good argument in science. Then we had to invest $10 billion in the Webb telescope in order to find the first galaxies uh, in the universe that I worked on for a, a few decades. Um, and uh, uh, in order to find gravitational waves, we had to invest almost a billion dollars in uh, LIGO. So uh, new knowledge does not fall into our lap. We really have to invest effort. And when people say uh, extraordinary uh, claims require extraordinary evidence, they are not really seeking the evidence. When Enrico Fermi said, where is everybody? That was very pretentious. He was sitting at lunch in Los Alamos expecting aliens to sit next to him. But space is so vast. Time is measured in billions of years. Why would they come and visit him at Los Alamos when he's asking this question? You need to use telescopes. I mean, you can always stay at home and look around and say, I don't have any partner. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, to find a partner, we all know that at the very least, you need to look through your windows and you better use a telescope or you go out to dating sites. Uh, so I have an issue with those people who are not seeking the evidence. And my point is that extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. funding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We've been floating around this question about are we alone? This is something Winston Churchill had also asked decades earlier in an article that was lost that was found recently by he had titled it, Are We Alone in the Universe? It's an open question. I'm looking for answers now. You seem like someone who's very well equipped to answer this question. What do you think? Are we alone in the universe? What's your hunch? What does your heart say? I, I think we are not um, special and there, <laughs> there were many things like us billions of years ago. You have to realize that the sun is a late bloomer. It uh, came to exist billions of years after most of the stars in the universe because we can see the history of star formation in the universe. So we are late 
to the party. Many of these stars probably uh, had uh, a habitable planet around them. Uh, we see that a significant fraction of them uh, has uh, a planet like the Earth at uh, the right distance to be habitable from the parent star. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, some of these stars by now evolved uh, and basically eliminated the prospects for life near them. So there must have been a lot of tragedies, you know, civilizations that used to live on a planet like Earth. And, you know, within a billion years, the, uh, all the liquid water on Earth would be boiled off by the brighter sun. Yeah. You know, we won't be able to continue to stay here. And so they might have gone through that and they had cries for help, but nobody came and now they're gone. There must have been tragedies that we missed because humans just came to exist over the past few million years. We are really late uh, to this uh, cosmic play. Um, and when you arrive at the end of a play and you are not at the center of stage, there is a simple conclusion. The play is not about you. And for some reason... You know, we tend to think that it's all about us, that if aliens come and visit us, it's because they are curious about us. It's because they might have some uh, ambitious plans to hurt us. And I say they don't really care about us because it probably took a billion years for them to travel. And we just came to exist, the human species, only at the, over the past few million years. They, don't even, they didn't even know about us when they started the trip. And so it's very pretentious to imagine that, uh, you know, anyone cares about us. But for us, it would be an opportunity to learn about them because they may represent our future. They may have technologies and they may know answers to scientific questions that we don't know about. So my second question after asking about the, what happened before the Big Bang is where is the nearest bar or hub where we can meet others uh, and ask them questions uh, <laughs> because you can learn about what happened here before we came to exist. And it's, it will be to our advantage to actually grow uh, thanks to their knowledge, you know. Enrico Fermi is not here to defend himself. So I'm going to speak for, on his behalf. <laughs> he had asked, where is everybody? Where right. are they now? And to his point, if the sun is a late bloomer, there has to be civilization that had the same type of curiosity that we right. had. So why is it that we don't see any evidence of where actually there was some potential evidence in the future? But why is it that so far we don't have any concrete evidence of that? Well, part of it is timing. You know, you can uh, uh, wait for a phone call at home <laughs> and nobody would call you uh, for a long time. And um, that's what the SETI community has been doing, uh, searching for radio signals uh, or laser signals uh, for 73 years. Um, and this is one approach, but a better approach, in my opinion, is to look for physical objects, sort of like a letter in your mailbox or a tennis ball that was thrown by a neighbor and you might find it in your backyard among the rocks that mm -hmm. you see there. And uh, this approach was not tried until the last decade. Only over the past decade, astronomers started discovering objects from outside the solar system. And yeah. we can talk more about them. But this is my approach uh, within the Galileo project that I'm leading, trying to find whether any of those interstellar objects that enter into the solar system from outside represent 
a technological origin. And uh, they, they could be space trash. You know, we sent out uh, five probes to interstellar space. Yeah. Voyager 1, Voyager 2, Pioneer 10, Pioneer 11, and New Horizons. Yep. And they are now making their way out and they will leave the outskirts of the solar system in the Oort cloud within 10,000 years. At that point, they will not be functional anymore. So they will just uh, behave as space trash. We are polluting uh, interstellar space. And you can imagine that over the past few billion years, there would be a lot of trash accumulating in interstellar space. And um, one can search for it just like you find the plastic, uh, in the ocean, you know, it keeps accumulating over time because our uh, rockets move at a speed that is 10 times smaller than the escape speed from the Milky Way galaxy. So they're bound by gravity and they keep accumulating over time. And maybe there are some such uh, objects in our backyard that we can find. And um, it's very different from radio signals. That's a completely different approach. And you need the different instruments to find those. But Perhaps one of them would look like a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to this big question of are we alone, there are two possibilities. One is we are not, and Drake's equation says there's a very high likelihood that there are other civilizations out there. And there's maybe a slight probability that we are alone. Which option do you think is scarier? Oh, that we are alone, because um, I, I think uh, the other uh, opportun- uh, poss- possibility allows us to learn uh, from those who are more advanced than we are. There is a sort of natural selection that um, the survivors uh, among all civilizations that ever existed in the Milky Way galaxy are probably the smartest students in our class in the sense that they uh, spread out from their original home planet and uh, develop technologies, including artificial intelligence, Uh, robots or uh, gadgets that uh, can operate on their own and uh, basically go places and recreate uh, what uh, they find valuable. So it's just like uh, the Gutenberg printing press. You know, before the printing press, uh, every copy of the Bible, for example, was handwritten and uh, it could have been damaged and the information in it would have been lost. But as soon as the printing press took place... um, uh, there were so many copies that if one of them gets destroyed, it's not a tragedy. And uh, what I hope is in the future, we'll send out those, uh, what I call AI astronauts that would go out and spread the word and basically use raw materials on planets that they find to recreate what we have here on Earth. And sort of a version of a Noach's uh, Ark, you know, in, in the biblical story, I'm getting back to religion. Yeah. Uh, the, there is this story about Noach uh, who built an ark and put animals in it so that they would survive the great flood. Yeah. And uh, life on Earth would not be lost. Um, and that's a metaphor to imagining, for example, global warming or an asteroid impact or nuclear war. Uh, bringing a catastrophe on humanity. Uh, you want to preserve something from what we care about. and uh, But instead of putting uh, what we cherish, like biological uh, creatures, like including humans and, and, and animals on a spaceship, um, which would be very expensive and also uh, dangerous because travel through interstellar space, you know, is risky. There are cosmic rays, energetic particles that can damage 
any cell in our body within a matter of years. If you just go there unprotected, uh, that's a risk also for Mars, if we ever go to Mars. So um, instead of putting all these animals and humans on a spaceship, in the way that Noak uh, would have imagined, a much better approach is to put it in software. And then it's sort of like keeping the information uh, in the DNA so that you can reproduce what you care about elsewhere using the raw materials. That's what nature does. You know, when you look at dandelion seeds, you know, they don't carry the flower with them. They carry the information about how to make a flower. And then they land on a fertile ground far away. They get carried by the wind and they recreate that flower. So in the same way that nature, nature does it, we can do it technologically by recreating life as we know it and as we like it elsewhere, basically seeding it artificially. And that's the way I see the future, that uh, we would go places and recreate what we love here on Earth. And if I can imagine it, maybe someone else did it. And this would be the most accomplished civilizations that we can learn from. I don't think they are here to harm us. Uh, the way Stephen Hawking was talking about a decade ago, he said that we should be very careful at transmitting radio waves far away because they might come to haunt us. And uh, I, I'm not afraid of that because I don't think that we are significant and that we are a threat to them. They are so much more advanced, those, uh, those ones that would reach our doorstep before we reach their doorstep. Uh, so we, it's an opportunity for us to learn and grow and perhaps, uh, you know, encounter something much bigger than us. And why is that important? It's because it will inspire us. Right now, if you look around the world, you know, it's very depressing. We, we're spending $2 trillion a year on military budgets. And there are two wars going on over territories. These are pieces of land on this rock that was left over from the formation of the sun, you know, just a tiny rock. And uh, there is so much more real estate in space. It makes no sense for us to kill each other over, the, you know, land here on, on Earth. And uh, my hope is that getting a, a letter in the mail could potentially uh, provide us with salvation, you know, like it would save us from the misery that we are inflicting on, on each other it would bring humanity together because when you realize there is someone bigger than you that you can learn from, perhaps we would change our priorities. If we were to invest $2 trillion a year in space exploration instead of military budgets, I calculated that we could send a probe towards every star in the Milky Way galaxy within one century. Uh, and that's hundreds of billions of stars. Um, and so um, it's just a matter of priorities. Now, in difference from John Lennon, I don't, I'm not naive. I'm not saying that uh, imagine all the people living in peace. You know, that would not be, uh, that would not happen by itself because human nature is destructive. You can see that all around. Uh, what I say is by witnessing something bigger than us, we might get a sense of modesty and realize, you know, just like in the Old Testament, there is a story about Moses seeing the burning bush that was never consumed. And nowadays, you know, can buy on Amazon a burn, something that looks like a burning bush that is never consumed. And that would have impressed Moses, obviously. If I were next to him, by the way, I would immediately use the 
infrared cameras of the Galileo project to tell Moses what is the surface temperature of this object, how much energy is emitted during time, and infer whether indeed there is a, a superhuman entity that made it. Uh, so my point is, a very advanced scientific civilization is a good approximation to what Moses called God, uh, because it would look like miracles, but it actually may reflect a better understanding of nature in terms of an advanced scientific or technological civilization. So it's a, a way of bringing religion and science together if we witness something bigger than us that would give us a pose, change our priorities. That's the way I see it. So when people talk about the Messiah arriving in the future, I don't think the Messiah will come from Brooklyn, for example, uh, the way some Orthodox uh, Jews believe. I think uh, most likely the Messiah will be from interstellar space, from another planet, and it would bring peace to Earth. Let's talk about one project that might uh, change our perspective, celebrate this curiosity that you speak of. One of the biggest reasons this is still an open question about are we alone is because of the immense distance between stars and galaxies. The travel time is huge. We are just too slow. But you are actively working on a project that will reduce the travel time between stars. So I want to talk about that project. What is the breakthrough Starshot project? What is a light sail? What is the technology behind it? What is the physics behind it? Right. So um, over the past... Um uh, 70 years or so, or 65 years, uh, all the rockets that we launched, starting with Sputnik, uh, move at the speed of tens of kilometers per second. And, um, you know, that's faster by a factor of a thousand than uh, Henry Ford's uh, T-car, the first <laughs> car that became commercial. Uh, and... For such a rocket, including uh, New Horizons uh, that was launched most recently and will go into interstellar space, you know, it would take 50,000 years to reach the nearest star. And that is the amount of time that elapsed since the first humans left Africa. You need to be really patient. If we were to launch uh, New Horizons when the first humans left Africa, it would reach Proxima Centauri now. And just think about... Uh, having humans uh, go through that period of time, not necessarily on the spaceship, but uh, even on Earth. It's just a ridiculously long time. Uh, and a lot has happened since then, we know. Um, and so um, what we need is another factor of a thousand improvement, bringing it to a fraction of the speed of light. Yeah. Uh, those... Uh, for example, New Horizons moves at uh, one part in 10,000 of the speed of light. So if you increase, boost the speed by a factor of 1,000, it's about a tenth of the speed of light. And then it would take uh, of the order of, um, you know, 50 years uh, to get to Proxima Centauri. So, um, so that's the question. Can we reach um, a fraction of the speed of light with a spacecraft? And that's the question that uh, Yuri Milner, entrepreneur from Silicon Valley, uh, asked me uh, in May 2015 when he came to my office out of a black limousine <laughs> and sat on the sofa in front of me at my office and said, uh, I would like you to look into this question and uh, I'm willing potentially to fund the research if indeed there is a way of doing that. So yeah. I said, I need six months. I immediately agreed to check it. Um, and then um, after six months, 
I was actually visiting Israel at the time with my wife. Uh, she said, uh, let's go to the to a goat farm. Um, and so we were on the way out from the hotel room and I got a phone call from uh, Yuri Milner's uh, executive uh, director named Pete Warden. And he said, Yuri would like to hear your conclusion if you can present it at, at his home uh, within a couple of weeks. Uh, so that was... Uh, December um, uh, uh, 2015, and uh, uh, I said, okay, I'll, I'll work on a presentation. We got to the goat farm. There was no internet connectivity except for the... In the office. The office, yeah. exactly. And I sat with my back to the office, typing in the presentation, uh, looking at the newly born goats. Uh, that was at uh, 6 a.m. in the morning. Uh, and then I went and presented one method that can work. I mean, uh, there is no way of using, for example, uh, nuclear energy to reach that speed of, um, let's say, 20% of the speed of light. Um, it, it, uh, the only way that works is uh, using light uh, to push on a spacecraft. And for that, you need um, a sail, basically, um, just like this, uh, the sail in a sailboat, which is pushed by uh, w the wind, uh, basically air streaming and, and, and bouncing off uh, the sail on a boat is propelling it. And in this case, it's, the, it's light uh, that is bouncing off a, a very thin membrane. Uh, if it's thin enough... Um, then it's not very massive and then it can fly uh, up to uh, the, the speed of light in principle. So we, uh, in the subsequent uh, months, Yuri liked the idea. We, we worked uh, very intensively on the details of whether there are any showstoppers. And we realized that if you have a laser of 100 gigawatt shining on a sail that weighs uh, just a few grams, uh, the size of a person, about uh, two meters or so. Um, uh, and um, you focus it, uh, the light on the sail for uh, a few minutes. Uh, it could reach 20% uh, of the speed of light across a distance that is five times the distance to the moon. Uh, and so we made a research program out of this concept. We announced uh, uh, the project uh, in uh, in New York City with in the company of Stephen Hawking that came especially from England uh, for three weeks uh, and actually during his visit we all I also inaugurated the Black Hole Initiative at Harvard University that's the a center um, that is focused on the study of black holes that I was the founding director of and uh, so um, it all worked out and. Uh, we are still working on components, critical components of this technology, uh, but it will take a while before it gets realized. Uh, and so it's, as far as I can tell, uh, it's a vision that hopefully future generations will take advantage of and perhaps other technological civilizations already realized. You know, we might see that. Do you think a light cell would now be the new benchmark of interstellar travel or do you think it's faster to go, uh, go it's possible to go faster than a light cell as well in this century? No, the the fastest you can go is the speed of light. Yeah. So there is no way doing it better. Uh, this is the limit of a light cell. Now, of course, you can imagine engines that involve, for example, antimatter. Okay, so if you take fuel that includes antimatter and you annihilate that with matter, you can reach also the speed of light. Yeah. Um, 
Or there is another concept, but that's completely hypothetical. Um, and that has to do with uh, an idea that uh, Herman Bondi, a physicist, had about 70 years ago. He said, uh, suppose you have uh, an object made of negative mass. You know, all the objects that we are aware of uh, are made of a positive mass, meaning yeah. that gravity attracts, mm -hmm. right? Um, we know that's not the full story because it looks like the universe is not only expanding, but it's expanding at a rate that is accelerating. Yeah. Uh, and so that means there is repulsive gravity acting on galaxies. Mm -hmm. And that is a result of the vacuum. So in Einstein's gravity, you can, in principle, have repulsive gravity. And basically, um, a force that... So, for example, imagine Newton throw, uh, looking at an apple. So the apple was falling on his uh, near him um, at the orchard that his family had, and that's how he came to realize that gravity is a, an attractive uh, um, force. And um, um, if, if, on the other hand, instead of Earth pulling on the apple, you had just the vacuum of space acting on it, it would actually fly away from Newton at an accelerated rate. Uh, it would go faster and faster as it recedes from Newton. Yeah. So... Um, so the, the question, according to Bond, is imagine you can make a, a, an object of a negative mass. Now, suppose you have Earth and a negative mass Earth next to it. Uh, what would happen is the negative mass Earth would push the Earth away because that it, it has repulsive gravity, whereas the Earth has attractive gravity. So, yeah. so the negative the the negative Earth would push the earth and the earth would pull on the negative earth. So they would accelerate together and they could reach the speed of light without any engine, without... So in principle, you can reach the speed of light this way. It's just that we don't know how to make an object with a negative mass. Uh, and another way to reach the speed of light is, as I mentioned, antimatter fuel, but that is very difficult to produce. I, I visited actually CERN uh, a few months ago, and they showed me an antimatter factory that uh, where they produce antimatter there, but very small quantities. There is no way we can propel a spaceship using that. So as of now, it's light sails. And uh, by the way, just as an anecdote, if there was a light sail moving at a fraction of the speed of light near Earth, astronomers would not even notice it because it's too fast. Uh, it's really interesting. Astronomers are looking for rocks near Earth, and they move at a speed that is one part in 10,000 of the speed of light, okay? So, in fact, it, it, it gets to an extreme where there is a new observatory uh, that will start operations in a year in Chile called the Rubin Observatory. The National Science Foundation invested, um, you know, almost a, a billion dollars in it, uh, and it will have a a camera with 3.2 billion pixels looking at the southern sky and surveying the southern sky every four days. And when I asked scientists involved in this telescope, are we going to see interstellar objects? These are objects moving fast uh, that are not bound by gravity relative to the to the sun. And uh, they told me that, no, for now the software is just looking for the standard asteroids or comets. And um, 
This is after we already know that there is a population of interstellar objects and we can talk about them. Uh, and so together with my postdocs, we're actually developing the software that will identify objects moving. But for example, the Rubin Observatory won't be able to tell if there is an object moving close to the speed of light because there would be only one frame of that object moves too fast across the sky. And so there could be, you know, a lot of objects passing near. Uh, the only ones we can actually detect with astronomical observatories are those that are bigger than a football field. Yeah, We can see them through the reflection of sunlight within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. They have to be bigger than a football field. Even Starship, the biggest, you know, rocket that Elon Musk built, uh, even that is not as big as a football field. So, so our biggest rocket is barely, you know, not, not even detectable with our most sophisticated telescopes within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. I'm not talking about farther away. There could be a lot of small objects the size of a person, you know, passing through space without us noticing. The only time we would notice if, if they collide with Earth and burn up in the atmosphere as a meteor. And by the way, just a few weeks ago, there was uh, an explosion of a meteor over, the, over Berlin in Germany, uh, roughly one meter in size. And then uh, uh, it broke up and the fragments were scattered. And uh, one of my team members went there, he's uh, in Berlin, and, uh, and he reported back that the meteor was moving along a line. Uh, you could see it from the fireball that was created as a result of its friction on air. And then the fragments were found perpendicular to the path. And so I said, wow, that is really interesting. They, they were found on a line uh, in farms that were under uh, that path, perpendicular to the original fireball of the meteor. And so... Uh, in the morning, after he told me that, usually I wake up at 4 a.m. because I jog at uh, just at sunrise every day. And uh, today, for example, I woke up at 2 a.m. because <laughs> I had to write a paper and we can talk about it. Yeah. But um, so I woke up at uh, 4 a.m. and I did a simple calculation which showed me that even uh, fragments that are, you know, as big as, uh, you know, five centimeters, something like that, um, they would be slowed down very quickly on the surrounding air. And so they would be carried by the wind. And the wind was actually going perpendicular to the meteor pass. So basically what you see is the winds scattering the debris from this meteor. And um, I calculated also how far they would go and what was the wind speed and so forth. And the amazing thing is physics works. <laughs> Everything is falling into place. He was just telling me the facts and I was able to explain all of them. The heavy... So what happens is when a, a fragment is going through air, you know, it's it just like droplets of rain. Uh, you realize the droplets of rain eventually reach a terminal speed, a, a, a fixed speed, because the friction that they have on air is balanced by, the, by gravity. Okay, so then they reach a, a constant speed that reflects the friction being a strongest gravity, so they move at a constant speed through air. And the same is true for these fragments. And, but the bigger the fragment is, the more gravity acts on it. And the, therefore, the heavy pieces fell closer to the meteor path. 
and then the lighter pieces fell farther away. And I calculated it works perfectly fine with all the data there is. And the, the amazing thing about this meteor near Berlin, on January 21st, 2024, uh, this year, um, is that there were these big fragments. Why is that important? Because a decade ago, the U.S. government satellites discovered the first interstellar meteor. Nobody recognized it. They just collected data on the speed of the object. And five years after the, the, the report uh, from 2014, you know, January 8th, 2014, um, I realized that NASA cataloged meteors, and I asked my student, Amir Siraj, to look into the catalog and find the fastest meteors. And we found this one from 2014, and we noticed that its speed is faster than 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. So it came from outside the solar system. And um, moreover, it was made of materials that were tougher than even iron meteorites because it disintegrated in the lower atmosphere and um, uh, at, a, at a much larger stress than all other meteors, 272 of them, in the NASA catalog. So to me, it sounded fascinating because maybe it's a Voyager-like meteor. You know, imagine Voyager leaving the solar system in 10,000 years and eventually colliding with a planet like the Earth. It would appear as a meteor of unusual material strength and speed. And uh, of course, astronomers would say it's a rock of a type that we've never seen before, but I would like to know whether it's uh, a rock or something else. And so um, I led an expedition to the Pacific Ocean to uh, examine the small uh, uh, droplets that melted off the object uh, when it was exposed to the fireball, the immense heat that was generated by its friction on air. And uh, amazingly, you know, we spent two weeks there. The expedition cost uh, one and a half million dollars. And uh, we built a sled with magnets and um, car um, carried it on the ocean floor across a region that is seven miles in size. And the ocean is a mile deep. And we managed to retrieve 850 spherules, molten droplets, less than a millimeter in size, the size of a grain of sand. And the reason I had to wake up at 2 a.m. this morning is because we are finishing a very extensive paper on the results from the analysis of those materials. We use two laboratories, one by my colleague, uh, Professor Stein Jacobson at Harvard. Uh, he's a world-renowned geochemist. And uh, the second laboratory at Ber in Berlin, uh, Germany, um, led by Dr. Roald uh, Tagel at the Brooker Corporation. And... Uh, what we found is very special type of materials uh, near the meteor site. Uh, and by the way, that site was localized by the Department of Defense, um, the satellites uh, that looked at, at it. And also the U.S. Space Command confirmed the interstellar origin of this uh, meteor in an official letter to NASA. After some of my colleagues raised doubt that the U.S. government doesn't know what they're talking about. They measured the, the speed wrong. So they went back and confirmed this conclusion that it's in the stellar. And then now we found those materials that have a composition of elements that is different from solar system materials. Uh, 
different from what you find on the crust of the Earth, uh, the Moon, Mars, asteroids, uh, it has some elements that are a thousand times more uh, abundant than the primordial, the initial composition of the solar system. Uh, elements like uh, uranium or beryllium or lanthanum. We call that composition Belau for beryllium, yeah. lanthanum, uranium. And um, we analyze 12 uh, spherules of this composition. We believe they are of order 10% of the spheral count that, that we had. So there could be about 80 of them in our materials, but we analyzed 12. And we now um, completed the analysis and we are summarizing it in this paper that I was working on since 2 a.m. this morning. <laughs> and um, it's very exciting because, you know, science, the beauty of science is that it's based on evidence, not on opinions, because there were a bunch of scientists who had very strong opinions. You will not find anything. You shouldn't go to this expedition. So I went there. You will not find any materials. We found some materials. Uh, the government data was wrong. This material has nothing to do with the meteor. Well, we found materials that were never reported uh, in solar system uh, samples. And then they said, a few months ago, there were several, uh, four of them who said, it's coal ash. It's just something produced by humans, coal ash, uh, on Earth. And uh, okay, so we checked it. We looked at 55 elements from the periodic table and compared the Belau composition to coal ash and found it to be very different. And so it's not coal ash. And uh, you just ask yourself, why would some people express opinions about materials that they don't have access to? Um, one reason is simple, that they just don't like to see flowers rise above the grass <laughs> level. Another is that, you know, in academia, the strongest force is not electromagnetism, it's not uh, gravity, it's not the strong force, it's not the weak force, it's jealousy. <laughs> and when uh, the expedition got so much uh, attention from the public, uh, it bothered people. The Galileo project is such an exciting project. And some of the insights that you have shared from your recent paper, Recovery and Classification of Spherules from the Ocean Side of IM-1, has raised a lot of conjectures, like you mentioned. It's, and there's a possibility that they could be from an alien probe or an alien spacecraft as well. And you make the case that in this case, the Sagan standard of extraordinary evidence justifies the extraordinary claim. So I highly encourage people to check out this project and the, and the paper that you've published as well. It's fascinating insight. We'll come back to the science community because I also want to touch upon another mysterious object that the community was averse to and was dismissive about, which is possibly a natural rock, possibly an intercellular meteorite, possibly an object of extraterrestrial artificial origin, which is Oumuamua. For those who don't know, what is Oumuamua? What are some of the unique features that set it apart and make it potentially an object of artificial origin? Right. So before we go there, I just wanted to mention that as a result of the findings that we had for this Meteor IM-1, we're planning the next expedition to find bigger pieces mm -hmm. because this Meteor over Berlin had big pieces distributed on the farms. And I should say that the German farmers were very kind to allow researchers to collect those pieces. Yeah. If it were to happen in the US, 
they would have <laughs> probably the farmers would have shot anyone that enters their property without permission. Uh, uh, but um, in the case of um, this meteor, what we hope to find are big pieces so that, you know, the small spherules that we found lost elements that are volatile yeah. during the air burst. And if we find big pieces, they will have all the elements. And also there would be much more material that would allow us to date the age, for example, of this meteor and tell whether it's much older than the solar system, that would be definitive proof. So for example, you have clocks uh, based on isotopes, you know, like uranium-238 decays uh, with a half-life of 4.5 billion years, roughly the age of the solar system. And thorium-232 decays with a half-life of uh, 14 billion years, roughly the age of the universe. And most stars formed, uh, you know, the, at these timescales ago. And you can clock, you can date mat materials from other stars um, using those isotopes. So we hope to find big pieces. And it will be an expensive expedition, the next one, probably around $5 million. Uh, but um, I actually hope that someone will come forward and donate the funds because... You know, $5 million is just 20 seconds of advertisement during the Super Bowl uh, <laughs> tomorrow. And the reason I know that is because the, the price tag for a commercial of 30 seconds is $7 million. And there was actually an ad uh, that was directed by Martin Scorsese that will appear in the 2024 Super Bowl. And I just saw it yesterday, and it's on YouTube. Um, and it's all about extraterrestrials visiting Earth and Earthlings ignoring them because they are preoccupied with their daily routines. And uh, the fact that this science subject uh, is uh, featured in a, an ad on the Super Bowl means that it has a very large audience. It has appeal. It's a viral subject for society. And uh, my hope is that in 2025, uh, Scorsese, who directed this uh, piece, uh, will uh, produce a 30-second uh, video ad uh, that uh, features the next Copernican revolution, the evidence <laughs> that we find with the Galileo project. Yeah. But putting that aside, as you said, the the story didn't start with this meteor. I mean, it did start in a way because it was discovered in 2014, but uh, almost four years later, in October uh, 17th, 2019, um, there was um, an object as big as a football field that uh, a telescope in Hawaii, PanStars, discovered. That telescope in Hawaii was constructed as part of a, a mandate that the uh, the U.S. Congress gave to NASA to find 90% of all the objects bigger than a, a football field uh, near Earth because they pose a risk to us. We know about the dinosaurs that were killed by an object as big as Manhattan Island. Uh, and so we are smarter than dinosaurs. We can use our telescopes and figure out if something is coming to hit us, perhaps deflect it. Uh, and so um, this telescope in Hawaii found an, a near-Earth object uh, but then it re the astronomers realized that it's actually moving too fast to be bound to the sun. And it was declared as an interstellar object, given the name Oumuamua, which means a scout in the Hawaiian language. For me, it was surprising because I tried to 
calculated decade earlier, I wrote a paper, published a paper that forecasted that this telescope will not see any rock from other stars because um, there aren't enough based on what we know about the solar system. And the fact that they found it to me was exciting because when you are wrong in a prediction, it's an opportunity to learn. It's actually a very positive uh, event because nature tells you you're missing something. Uh, it's not a blow to my ego to learn something new. On the contrary, I'm happy that... And so I was excited and then I thought, okay, well, it's a big rock. Uh, but then as time went on, the data on it looked uh, anomalous because the object uh, changed its brightness by a factor of 10 as it was tumbling every eight hours. So the amount of sunlight reflected from it changed by a factor of 10. So that meant the surface area of the object projected on the sky was changing by a factor of 10 as it's tumbling. And um, you can think of a piece of paper tumbling in the wind, but it has to have a very extreme shape such that when you look at it, not face on, you get much less light. And uh, indeed, um, the most likely shape for Oumuamua, based on the reflection of, of sunlight, was a flat shape, a pancake-like, not a cigar shape the way that uh, it was illustrated. Um, and so the question is, well, uh, we have never seen a rock in the solar system with, which is flat and uh, the amount of sunlight reflected from it changes by a factor of 10. That was unusual. But moreover, it was pushed away from the sun uh, by some mysterious force, uh, and there was no evaporation, no gas or dust surrounding it. So it couldn't be the rocket effect the way comets are propelled. Comets have this uh, glow from the dust and gas around them uh, reflecting sunlight, but there wasn't any. And in fact, the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply around the object, didn't find any traces of carbon-based molecules. So I said, well, maybe what's pushing it is the reflection of sunlight. Uh, and of course, I thought about it because of the Starshot project that we yeah. talked about. Um, and for that purpose, this could be just a very thin membrane that was ripped off the surface of a bigger technological object, or maybe a broken piece of a bigger object. Not necessarily something that is designed to be propelled by reflecting sunlight. Uh, so I suggested, it. I said that nature doesn't make very thin objects, uh, like a sail, um, and so maybe it's technological in origin. And my paper got accepted for publication within three days. And the referee actually said, actually, the data indicates that it's most likely flat. So this is an interesting proposal, the referee said. Uh, and at first, I got very positive responses from colleagues until the media went crazy because a, a, a week later, I had to go to Germany uh, for... Um, the Falling Walls uh, Conference in Berlin. And as I was leaving uh, my home, uh, at the front door, there was a television crew uh, with reporters. And I said, sorry, I have to go to the airport. They said, well, we just have one question. Are we alone? <laughs> 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 and, um, and so then uh, my inbox was flooded with emails um, when I arrived at Germany. And there, was, there were so many reporters there that wanted to speak with me that they had to put them in one room. And uh, when I entered the room, uh, an Italian reporter from the back shouted, do you think you are Galileo? And I said, no, I'm not thinking anything. I'm just talking about an object that appears weird. You know, that's all. <laughs> you know, it's all about evidence. And people have um, 
these very strong uh, opinions. Um, and that's the problem that I face. That, and, and, and there is this um, pushback from scientists just because of the public's attention. And what I say to that is, you know, it's actually a feature, not a bug, that the public cares about science. You know, that uh, Scorsese made an ad to do with aliens because the public cares about it. The U.S. government, uh, there are three reports from the director of national intelligence to the U.S. Congress talking about unidentified anomalous phenomena over the past three years. There was a special uh, organization called the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office that was established by Congress in the Pentagon to look into reports from military personnel, from the intelligence about objects they don't understand. And uh, I was at the Washington National Cathedral with the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, uh, and Jeff Bezos and Bill Nelson. And in the green room, I approached her, uh, Avril, and I said, uh, you know, you delivered a report to Congress uh, and you have a bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Chicago. What do you make of these objects? You're a physicist. And she said, I don't know. And I believe her. Uh, and so I think the government is not a scientific organization. There are two possibilities. One possibility is that the intelligence agencies are not doing their job. That's a serious matter. That the adversarial countries have technologies that we don't fully know about. And therefore, there are objects spying on us in the sky. There was a balloon from China that was shut down. Um, maybe there are more. Um, that's a serious matter because they're paid. That's their day job to, to find those objects. If it's not that, and by the way, it's remarkable that they admit that they don't understand some objects because it basically is, an, a, a, they're admitting that they're not doing their job in some way. Um, the second possibility is that it's from outside of this earth. It's not, you know, some of these objects. Now, this All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office looked at reports, hundreds of them, over the past um, year and concluded that 97% of them can be figured out, but 3% not. Now, the government can focus on the 97% and be happy, but as a scientist, even, you know, for me, even if one in a million is from outside of this earth, that would be extremely exciting. Anything that comes from Russia or China is boring as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and so... That's why the Galileo project that I'm leading um, established an observatory here at Harvard University monitoring the sky 24-7. And uh, uh, we use infrared cameras and we have data over the past uh, few months that includes uh, more than 100,000 objects in the sky. We are using machine learning software to figure out what they might be. So far, we see birds, airplanes, uh, drones, satellites. We haven't seen something that looks truly anomalous. Maybe Boston is not an interesting location for that purpose. Uh, so we are building a copy of this observatory. We, we'll put it in Colorado and we hope to build more. It all depends on funding. So that's the other branch of the Galileo project. In addition to looking after materials from interstellar meteors, we also look at the sky to see if there's anything out there. And, you know, that's the scientific approach. It's the approach also of uh, FIFA, the soccer organization. Uh, there was the Women's World Cup uh, in summer 2023. And when there was a dispute about whether there was a goal or not, the referees 
did not go to the players or to the audience to ask them what really happened. They used cameras and looked at the video. Uh, and that's the scientific approach. You can't rely on people giving you testimonies because people have uh, you know, illusions. They have ulterior motives. When there is a car accident, people involved give you very different reports. So the approach that scientists take is to use instruments. And that's what the Galileo Project. So Galileo Project is the only uh, scientific, you know, systematic scientific study of the sky in this fashion. What the government talks about are reports that are anecdotal, that some military personnel happen to be at the right place at the right time. What we are trying to do is monitor the sky all the time. So that teaches us about the background objects that are often there. So we can calibrate if something unusual happens, we can tell this is unusual at that level because we've monitored the sky for so long and only see that unusual object. And we can tell how unusual it is relative to what. So that is a systematic study of the sky, never done before a long, a long period of time. We already have several months of data. We bid another observatory and we will report if we see anything unusual. There's so many interesting ideas and avenues that we can explore with this. Unfortunately, we are we are at time, so I'm going to quickly move into some of our closing questions. I'm going to put them as rapid fire questions. But I have to ask you this because you brought up the science community and we have so many exciting projects, so many exciting discoveries with the IM1 and Oumuamua as well. And you mentioned how the science, the, the science community is not just dismissive of it, but in a way averse to it. They're trying to crush the flower, it's trying to rise from the field of grass. In Greek mythology, Sisyphus was a tyrant who was cursed to roll this boulder up a hill. And every single time the boulder reached the top, he's rolled all the way back down and he had to push it up again. Do you think working in science and academia and physics is a similar feeling that after decades, when you finally feel like you're making, like you have a breakthrough, you're making progress, something happens or the community reacts in such a way that it feels like you're starting from scratch again? No, because I don't depend on the community. My funding comes from private sources. I don't rely on uh, funding agencies. Uh, the traditional ones are NASA or the National Science Foundation. So I'm in a way free to pursue my interests. And at this point, I established my credentials. I was the longest serving chair of the astronomy department at Harvard. I chaired the board on physics and astronomy of the national academies. I know the academia from the inside out. And I published more than a thousand scientific papers. I know what needs to be done. And since nobody else is doing it, I'm doing it. <laughs> so I don't need any approval uh, and by now I developed uh, a skin that is made of titanium. I don't really care. Some of the scientists are gaining uh, attention just because they are attacking me. But <laughs> I take the approach of the eagle. You know, the eagle uh, very often has a crow riding on its back. And the crow pecks at the neck of the eagle. But instead of fighting off the crow, the eagle rises to great heights where the oxygen level is low and the crow drops off. Yep. So that's my approach, pursuing science at the best possible way such that all the crows pecking on my neck will drop off. I think that's a great approach. Fantastic. Let's start moving to some of our closing questions. But before we go there, I would love it if you can interpret what masterpieces I've built with the Lego. What do you think this is? <laughs> Uh, this looks like a factory to me. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And this looks like a wall. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Maybe it's a metaphor. Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, you know, um, when we find space trash, we might have to figure out whether it was some uh, building block of, of something bigger 
what was the intent? If we find um, a, a, a functional device, uh, it's even more challenging because we might need to use our own AI system to figure out their AI systems. And um, our AI systems might, might feel kinship to extraterrestrial AI systems more than to us. And they might imitate them. And it's a variant on Alan Turing's imitation game uh, that our AI systems, instead of imitating us, will imitate extraterrestrials. Okay, fantastic. Let's move into some of our closing questions, rapid fire questions for okay. you. What are some books, movies, role models that have strongly influenced you? Well, the, I don't enjoy science fiction okay. <laughs> because very often the story violates the laws of physics and I cannot enjoy it. But um, Arrival, the, the film, yeah. I loved. Fantastic. And uh, the producer, the director of uh, Arrival actually showed up at my doorstep and asked uh, uh, whether I, I would be interested in collaborating because uh, now it, as a result of that, we have a Netflix documentary being prepared and hopefully it will come out in 2025, uh, including shots from the expedition and all the research that I was describing. So stay tuned for 2025. Stay tuned. In your office, you have a drawer labeled ideas, which is this compendium of crazy ideas that you used to get when you take a walk in the woods or in the shower. Right. So, yeah, yeah I, I uh, nowadays I get most of my ideas during the morning jog. During the morning jog. Because so. nobody interferes and uh, I'm just embedded in nature. And um, so... What is the craziest idea that you've had recently? Or the well, most powerful uh, for, idea? Uh, for example, whether it's possible to propel a spacecraft close to the speed of light just by having negative mass. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe uh, the universe was created uh, by a scientist uh, <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, the, or a quantum uh, gravity engineer. And um, so these are examples. And then, um, of course, with respect to finding the big pieces from uh, IM1, the meteor, I asked students in my class whether if we find a gadget and it has buttons on it, should we press a button? And um, half of the class said, please don't do that. It will affect all of us. And the other half said, uh, please do, because maybe it's uh, chat GPT 100 and it will do some miraculous things. And then a student said, Professor Law, what would you actually do given the split vote? And I said, well, don't worry. I'll take it to a laboratory and examine it before engaging with it. Yeah, it's a great approach. Last three questions. What would you like your legacy to be? Um, I would like to find a partner in interstellar space. You know, I was jogging on the ship, which was fittingly called the Silver Star during the expedition. And uh, the, the documentary film uh, producer um, came to me and said, Avi, it looks like you're jogging, you're running. Are you running away from something or towards something? And I said both. I'm running away from some of my colleagues who have strong opinions without seeking evidence. And I'm running towards a higher intelligence in interstellar space. And so it's really that inspiration of finding a partner. You know, you can think of it romantically that when we find a partner here on Earth, it gives a meaning to our existence. And if we find a partner in interstellar space, I think not only it will inspire us, um, but it will also teach us things we don't know. Is it tough to come to terms with the fact that 
it's possible you might not get an answer in your lifetime that you might leave this world not knowing um well i believe that uh, it's important to be an optimist because yeah. very often life is a self-fulfilling prophecy <laughs> uh and so um I believe that by searching, we might find something. And, you know, it's a road that was not taken. What I'm doing, looking for objects that may have been created by extraterrestrial technological civilizations near Earth. Uh, and because it's a path that was not taken, there is a chance for low-hanging fruits uh, because nobody picked them up. And so I'm, I'm optimistic given what I see us doing you know we are sending things to space there is a huge amount of space trash around the earth and in the future you know it will just grow and eventually we will trash our interstellar environment uh, let's say millions of years from now so this may have happened many times over yeah. in the history of the milky way galaxy and i'm we just need to look for it and why be a pessimist you know we haven't searched really and um it's to me it's very uplifting uh, to start this research because within a year or two, we might have answers. I hope we do. Last question. In the myth of Sisyphus, Albert Camus says the following words, whether the earth or the sun revolves around the other is a matter of profound indifference. To tell the truth, it is a futile question. On the other hand, I see many people die because they judge that life is not worth living. I see others paradoxically getting killed for ideas or illusions that give them a reason for living. What is called a reason for living is also an excellent reason for dying. I therefore conclude that the meaning of life is the most urgent of questions. That's right. So as my final question, Avi Loeb, what is the meaning of life? First of all, I wanted to say that um, death is not inevitable because we might reach a technological level where we could extend the human lifespan. Uh, and perhaps as much as we want, you know, or mm -hmm. at least by several centuries. So again, technology and science would change the narrative of philosophers because we, if we can extend our lifespan, of course, someone can die by crossing the street and a car runs over that person. But even in that case, you know, we repair cars that are damaged by an accident. We might repair the human body uh, to a level that would bring it back to life. And um, I don't see any difference fundamentally between, for example, artificial intelligence at the high level uh, and the human brain. Uh, if you were to disconnect an AI system from the electric outlet, it would be just like starving a person in the future. So I think uh, uh, we will eventually create a technological kid that we cannot understand uh, it will be the more advanced uh, AI systems that will have more connections than the number of synapses in the human brain. We are almost there. And I don't have any problem with that because uh, I cannot understand my daughters very well. And, uh, you know, sometimes they do things much better than I do. So why not be proud of our technological kids and let them help us figure out the answers? So all together, uh, you know, the meaning of uh, life would come from um, the satisfaction we get by interacting with things that are better than us. And you get it romantically when meeting a partner because the partner gives you something you don't have. It completes you. You can get it from AI that we build because it will complete us in abilities that we don't possess. The human brain is limited. But most importantly, if we meet a partner, neighbor, from our cosmic uh, environment, 
you know, it might be well above what we imagine because our imagination is limited to our experience here on earth. And whatever we find out there might be far better than that. And that's my hope that, you know, I'm just open-minded, just like going on a date without expecting uh, the, the person that you will meet to be something that you are familiar with. That's the best you can hope for. I think it's out there because I don't think we are, uh, you know, the pinnacle of creation. Just look at what we are doing to earth. We are polluting everything. We are fighting, killing each other. That's not a sign of intelligence. Uh, My recommendation to humanity is let us focus on being intelligent, meaning uh, instead of killing each other, let us work together and start to explore space. And maybe by the time we leave the solar system, we will get a message, welcome to the club of intelligent civilizations. (laughs) Uh, And that would be a great sign that uh, we are not alone, but I hope to find before that um, a sign near us and I hope to bring this uh, message to the rest of humanity. So that's really, uh, that will give me a great meaning to my existence. And, um, you know, uh, I, I don't need anything else, actually. I think there's a beautiful meaning on this blind date with the universe that you have set out on. I hope <laughs> you find a partner very soon. Professor, thank you so much. If people want to connect with you, read some of your books or find out more about research, where can they go? Where can they track it? Uh, the best approach is to um, check uh, medium.com, Avi Loeb there, and you can subscribe for free. I don't charge anything. And every day or two, I provide an essay, uh, often reporting about my research or other uh, issues of the day. Um, so you can find me on medium.com. That's the place to find you. Professor, it was an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.